Blog Talk Radio. I'm a truth terrorist. I'm a knowledge gangster. I'm a black history hitman. I'm a live killer urban gorilla. I gotta be a rough nag. Free the black Panthers. FCBP. Stand for free the black Panthers. If up the black police. That 13th Amendment. Trying to make a slave of me. You can like my body, can't trap my mind, not forever be free. Okay, free the Black Panthers, FCBP, stand for free the Black Panthers, and fuck the black police. Feds infiltrated our movements for black leadership roles, but we still here, finna build here, up coin tail pro. Show, they got me started, lying hearted, I'm the new Mufasa. And I'm all about Umoja, first in Guzu Saba. Let's bring back the black families, we need our father. Single mama, son and daughter, that's root of the problem. Wise up, we wise up. Unity is so powerful. Black banks, black schools, black on black power moves. You telling lies, you think this shit won't be televised. Black power, be scared guys, that be standing there like they paralyzed. Huh? We say fuck the system, cause we above the system. We keep ARs and pistols, shotguns that's worth the crystal. But that's for self-defense, make sure we have no issues. Be sure to leave it at the door if you have it with you. This for them freedom fighters, that lost their freedom. Until they freedom, we screaming carpe diem. This for the general, King Khalid Muhammad. We gon' make your day a holiday, I fuck me promise. Free the Black Panthers, FCBP, stand for free the Black Panthers. If up the black police, that 13th Amendment, tryna make a slave of me. You can like my body, can't trap my mind, not forever be free. Okay, free the Black Panthers, FCBP, stand for free the Black Panthers. If up the black police, feds infiltrated our movements for black leadership roles. My sisters, my brothers, the council, the elders, that's really all I need. We suited, we booted, don't do it, you stupid, we head to the armory. Black woman and goddess, regardless, my heart just don't fuck with misogyny, foolish that don't tolerate it. Melanated, so you gotta hate it. But rock up, up another conversation. Trump finna get inaugurated, damn. Unify or die. NBPP.org. First and foremost, the new Black Panther Party, no, no other Black Panther Party, we're not violent. We are for self-defense and self-determination. And the most violent group in this country are the police. What is taking place by the police department to black people across this country is ethnic cleansing and genocide. It has escalated Barack Obama was inaugurated in 2008. We have a, 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 a people who are only 13% of the population, yet we make up 80% of the prisons. We have 50% unemployment rate in the black community, and it's actually even more than that because they're not counting our people that are in the prisons. The 13th Amendment said you could not be made a slave or indigenous service unless you commit a crime. We need our own nation.
Good afternoon, everybody, and welcome. This, uh, I'm very pleased today to be able to, to bring this, this presentation uh, to you all. My name is Akil Roper. I'm a senior vice president here at Legal Services of New Jersey, and our program today is Reparations Now. It is part of the Ellison J. Justice Series, which are public events uh, for the time being held in Zoom webinar format. Uh, intended to raise awareness of important social justice issues, both state and nationwide, uh, featuring lecturers, panel speakers, and community members. And so I'm also proud to announce today that the Ellison J. Justice Series will here and after be named the D. Miller Justice Series in honor of the legacy of our former longtime president and fierce advocate who passed away earlier this year. It was his commitment to equal justice for all and anti-racism that makes this work possible. So today we're joined by Ryan Haygood, President and CEO of the New Jersey Institute for Social Justice, Crystal Crawford, Executive Director of the Restern Center on Law and Poverty, Camilla Moore, Chair of the California Reparations Task Force, and Kenya Tyson, Executive Director of the Black Massacre Project, and Professor and Assistant Provost of Academic Affairs at the University Curriculum at the New School. Um, they each bring a valued and unique perspective to the reparations conversation, and we're very lucky to have them as presenters today. So we'll hear from each of them, um, and then we'll have a brief Q&A in our remaining time. Um, and if questions come up during the course of the presentation, if it, uh, if it fits, we'll, um, we'll try to field those as well. Um, first, I wanted to share a few thoughts on reparations in the context of civil legal assistance and the work that we do here at Legal Services. Uh, in the words of the Miller Legal Services in New Jersey, and that is the statewide system of legal services in the state, um, embraces the vision of full access to essential civil legal aid for all economically disadvantaged people who cannot secure a lawyer on their own. Uh, just because you have lesser means doesn't mean that you should be without justice. Uh, but we also strive to pursue actions and push for advocacy that will have impact beyond individual parties in specific legal cases uh, to help rebuild impoverished, deteriorating communities or to address recurrent problems that otherwise would continue to occur in the lives of low-income people. Uh, it's a war against poverty, and the war against poverty includes with it the fight against racism and fighting against discrimination in its various forms in pursuit of economic and social justice. As we reported in our recent Poverty Research Institute report, through poverty, many of those in poverty are people of color and suffer from disparities in income and wealth, employment, housing, health, and education. And when you look at the various metrics in our society, it's hard not to see those disturbing trends. Um, in our state in New Jersey, black people comprise about 14% of the total adult population, but nearly two thirds of the total prison population or 62% is black. Um, the disparity is even worse in juvenile detention facilities where blacks comprise nearly 75% of the population. As a result of geographic segregation, schools are also very segregated in New Jersey um, and limited black and urban communities access to educational resources and for all students in segregated schools, the ability to have an enriched learning experience through a diverse student population is missed. College also is considered a pathway to advancement, but enrollment rates are substantially lower for blacks and Latinos than whites nationwide. Uh, and we've heard and will hear from the Institute for Social Justice the disturbing data uh, that show the extreme wealth gap between people of color and whites. Uh, where the average white individual has 10 times the wealth of the average black or Latino individual. And those are just a few examples. So if we're interested in exploring the various facets of disproportionality, which rears its ugly head every day in our practice, and get at it at its roots, 
we have to look at our history and our history from the introduction of black people to this country 400 years ago through slavery. Um, 250 years of slavery until emancipation, and then that was followed by another 100 years of inequitable and explicitly racist Jim Crow policies and laws, which restricted housing and employment opportunities, uh, voting, and other civil rights. And while the civil rights movement of the 1960s brought significant legal protections through that long history, and looking at the outcomes right now, black people are still suffering from the worst of conditions. So reparations, uh, viewed in that light, may be what is needed in terms of long overdue compensation for slavery and other harms. Um, and it may be key in helping correct decades of structural and systemic racism, which leave black people at a disadvantage across virtually all socioeconomic measures and civil legal outcomes. Um, so with that, uh, let's move forward to the panel. And we'll start with Ryan Haygood and the work he's doing, and in particular, uh, his work in leadership with the Institute's Say the Word campaign to bring reparations to New Jersey. Awesome. Thanks, Akil. Thanks for this um, chance to be with, with friends and with the legal services community. Thanks for your leadership in organizing a discussion around the word uh, reparations, and thanks for situating us in, the, in this moment. I just want to say uh, initially that it's great to share this space with my dear friend Kenya Tyson and Crystal and Camilla you don't know this, but I tuned into the first um, reparations task force meeting. I watched the whole thing. I voted for you virtually, so I was so excited when you became the chair. And that process was an interesting one, to, to say the least. I'm excited to be here. So um, Akil asked me to say a few words about the work we've been doing with Ellis and Jay around this issue, and then to give a, a sort of a historical discussion about how we situate those disparities Akil talked about and historical context, and then what are we to do around those? Let's, I'm going to share my my screen. I knew that uh, Kenya was going to be on, so I, had, I stayed up all night preparing this PowerPoint, and I'm hoping that it doesn't disappoint uh, disappoint you all. So I love I love Akil's title, reparations. Now it is um, it's appropriate to be having this conversation as the country has been grappling in what folks have regarded as sort of a, a racial reckoning around how do we, in the places where we are, whether in California or New Jersey, in the South, the Southwest, how do we grapple with, with our history and its relationship to, to the current moment that we're in? And so I thought through just a couple of questions I, I wanted to share preliminarily that guide, that guide this moment. One is, how did we get here? And whatever here is, right? I know that's a loaded word here, here meaning in the throes of the coronavirus pandemic here, in the throes of a police brutality pandemic here, in a broader structural racism uh, moment. How do we get here? And what does here, what does this moment require of us? And how can we collectively, as a legal services community, you all are doing this work on the front lines, representing people impacted by those racial disparities we'll talk more about. How do we collectively lift our voices to seize this moment so that we emerge from it stronger, better, together. And then finally, how do we collectively advocate? How do we collectively lift our voices to build systems that repair that harm from structural racism, that create wealth, that transform justice, the very system that Ellis and Jay does such powerful work? And how do we harness democratic power from the ground up in whichever communities we're finding ourselves in, including here in New Jersey? Uh, so very quickly, this is an image that my colleague Jake created for us here at the Institute, where I'm really blessed to work with a, a team of incredible social justice advocates 
And it's obviously a picture of a young black boy who's standing on a foundation. And you know, to see the foundation is cracked. And we have thought a lot about how those are the cracks of structural racism. And that particularly in this moment, those cracks are causing real earthquakes in black communities and in other communities of color. And it really is our charge, though we did not create that foundation. Right? We each on this line in this conversation, we inherited a foundation already cracked by structural racism, but we think that given that we're people with conscious conscience, given the work we've been called to do, that it's really upon us to take responsibility for this foundation and the cracks we found and to build a new one and to fill in those cracks. One of those cracks shows up so powerfully in this moment around police brutality. And I won't spend a lot of time on this because it's a top of mind for all of us, in particular for the legal services community, but you know, this is a striking, striking image of Mr. George Floyd's body. This was in the cover of the New Yorker magazine last June, and it captured me as someone who's 45 because if you look in the center, and the center of Mr. Floyd's outline, you'll see, uh, Camilla, coming from your state, a picture of uh, a man on the ground. That was Rodney King. He's surrounded by four Los Angeles police officers. That was taken on March 3rd, 1991. And 30 years later, we're still having conversations about police brutality very often against unarmed black people and people of color more broadly. And what's striking about that particular image is that was one of the first incidences of police brutality that was captured on a camcorder. It was the old school version of the camcorder, the large one, way before cell phones. And people thought, look, if you could just capture police misconduct by video, you'd have enough evidence to stop it. And 30 years later, we're having very similar conversations about the way that cracks, the cracks of structural racism show up in our community uh, here in the area of police brutality. If you look to the right of um, Mr. Rodney King on the ground, you'll see um, that's Emmett Teal, right, um, a, a generation before Rodney King. Uh, very quickly, we just want to look up a few of the racial disparities and how these cracks show up here in New Jersey. Akil um, referenced these, and I just I want to lift up one of these. So this is a staircase of racial disparities in New Jersey. And I think that people, when they think about New Jersey, often think about how progressive a state we are, how we have always been a beacon for freedom and for democracy. We've always been a light that championed liberation. But people don't often appreciate the way in which slavery took root very, very deeply in New Jersey and the way in which the racial disparities that black people face today, some of the worst in the country, are rooted in slavery in New Jersey, most notably the second stair, which features the individual net wealth of white people, black people, and brown people. And I want to lift this up because this is a racial wealth gap that we live with in 2021 that was conceived of, it was birthed in slavery in New Jersey, and I'll explain how in a few slides ahead. But just focus with me, if you will, on the staircase. The staircase, I think, is an apt metaphor for all of us, each of us, right? We have to confront life, and life is filled with, it's full of challenges here represented by stairs, and that we are each required to confront and do our level best to overcome the challenges here represented by stairs. But for black people in New Jersey, the staircase is especially steep. It's also especially steep for people of color more broadly. The second stair shows us 
that the individual net wealth of white adults in New Jersey is $106,210. This is one of the highest individual net wealth of anyone in the country. White adults in New Jersey, $106,210. But by staggering, really shameful contrast, the individual net wealth for black and brown adults in New Jersey is $179 United States dollars. And I want to talk a bit about where that comes from to inform the broader discussion about what reparations can be, about what it is, and I think why as a state we need to move forward in that direction post-haste. But because we're talking about young people as as seen in the past two graphs, I just want to say a quick word about the role of uh, that my wife plays in the, in the life of young people. You'll find this is a picture of her and her team. She's uh, standing in the front with the A on her shirt with her fist raised. She's surrounded by her team. This is a photo that was taken uh, last March, the very beginning of the coronavirus pandemic. And she's featured here with her team. You'll see to the left on the floor, that's about 125 Chromebooks. And so this picture captures the moment when Shortly after my wife's charity and her team were urged by the superintendent to get every computer in their school to their students, they did that. They quickly delivered every computer they had in Avon Avenue School in the South Ward of Newark, delivered those computers to each of their scholars. The challenge was, though, that after delivering each computer they had, they had about 125 students short of a laptop. And so in what became a really incredible act of generosity, a gentleman named Michael Rowe, who hosts a show called Returning the Favor, you can find it on Facebook, he learned about charity and her team's effort to deliver computers, and he gifted Avon Avenue School $25,000, which was enough to purchase 125 computers, which you see on the floor, that charity and her team quickly delivered to their students. So one incredible act of heroism, from Michael Rowe, another incredible act of heroism by Charity and her team, who literally, at the beginning of the pandemic, put themselves in harm's way to deliver computers to their students so that, in the end, every one of the more than 600 kids at Avon Avenue School had in their laps or in front of them a laptop. And these are two of Charity's students. Now, if my wife were here, she would say that there are a lot of things that the eye, right, the naked eye can see here about the, to put it charitably, suboptimal ways that kids can be learning at home. And she said, we can't, you can't, you can't miss those in, in this photo. But what she would also say is, I just want to say a word about the ingenuity of my young scholars here, who having to learn under less than ideal conditions, thought of ways to nevertheless learn. So in this moment, we learned shortly after kids got laptops, that though they had in front of them, in their laps, or on window sills that double as desks as these young boys have here, but they couldn't access those devices because they didn't have internet, right? Early in the pandemic, we learned about this as one of the disparities. So these young boys moved their computers to the window sill. They were able to borrow Wi-Fi from a neighbor. They fashioned for themselves desks and seats and found whatever nutrition was, was available. My wife would say that this picture makes a number of things clear, one of which is that there are real limitations to individual acts of heroism, whether it be a gift 
from Michael Rowe at the national level to buy every kid a computer, whether it be an administrator and her team delivering those computers, whether it be a number of individual or collectively LSNJ attorneys doing yo person's work to be real heroes in communities. The truth is that those acts of heroism are not replacements for broken systems. That what we need in our communities to go along with acts of heroism are systems that actually empower our communities. And so I was struck by the picture of those two young boys, and so I offered this tweet a bit ago that said, the net wealth for black people in New Jersey is $179. This is less than the cost of a laptop and a number of other things. I say at the bottom here that New Jersey designed it that way during slavery. just want to offer a quick word about what I mean here. So my colleague, Laura Sullivan and Andrea McChristian, who power our advocacy, authored this report called Erasing New Jersey's Red Lines. And the premise in the report is that from our founding as a colony, New Jersey created a racially exclusive system for distributing property. And that racially exclusive system for distributing property has led to that stark, stark racial wealth gap that we just discussed that exists today. That when we were founded as a colony, New Jersey provided each English white settling family with 150 acres of land and New Jersey as a colony provided an additional 60 acres of land for each enslaved black person who worked on that land. So as a colony, New Jersey incentivized not only slavery, but the enslavement of black people by giving free acreage for each enslaved black person who worked on that land. By the 1800s, more than two-thirds of all enslaved black people in the North were held captive right here in New Jersey. Now, I have offered this slide a number of times, and I can see folks' faces, right, that folks have real issues with this actual piece of history. That was a part not only of New Jersey's history, but as I'll explain more, it's a part of our It's a part of who we are in 2021. And after becoming the last northern state to end formal slavery, New Jersey developed its own form of sharecropping. Here we called it cottaging, but it was synonymous with sharecropping, same practice. Now, this is an important slide because all the time I get questions from folks that say something like, well, Ryan, like slavery was like way back then. Like we weren't alive, you weren't alive, your grandparents weren't alive, your great-grandparents, you, right, you can't go too far back here, right? Folks just weren't alive. So how are you talking about racial wealth gap in 2021 when slavery was like way back then? And I talk about it in this way that there was slavery, right, formal slavery, deeply entrenched slavery, legal slavery in New Jersey. And when it ended, it gave way to a new form of slavery, which we called cottaging. Uh, after cottaging in, that gave rise to a number of policies and practices that continued to entrench, perpetuate slavery, restrictive covenants. Then the denial of home ownership opportunities through the GI Bill for returning black World War II veterans. Fewer than 100 in New Jersey and New York alone. Then through Jim Crow segregation in New Jersey. Then on to redlining. Then on to exclusionary zoning policies. Then to predatory lending practices. This is a direct line from slavery in New Jersey to today's racial wealth gap. It's an unbroken line. And so you can trace our racial wealth gap today in 2021 directly back to slavery. So the way forward, I just want to say a few words before I turn back to appeal. So the way forward is through advocacy from the ground up. And this is what LSNJ does 
best, right? Is just work with clients, with systems, with people to advocate from the ground up in our community. And I do believe that when we've seen change happen around racial justice, it's always started in our communities and moved uh, on the way up. And so we offered two years ago, the beginning of two years ago, um, what we styled as a Black in New Jersey 2021-2022 action agenda in the areas of building wealth, transforming justice, building power, repairing the harm of racism. You can find this on our website at www.njisj.org. I just want to say a quick word about that last bullet, repairing the harm of racism. Uh, Last year, we stood with, in this photo, a number of courageous legislators. It was, Camilla, before California passed its bill. And in this moment, we were pushing hard to become the very first state to create a reparations task force that would do two things. One, the task force would take responsibility for, would tell the actual story of how slavery manifested itself in New Jersey. The second thing the task force would do was that it would make policy recommendations about the kind of system we need to build and the kind of investments we need to make to respond to the enduring harm of slavery. Now, this was important because we were in the middle of and continue to be in the the throes of what folks are thinking of as a racial reckoning. How do you have hard conversations, one, about slavery, about strokes or racism, and as importantly about repairing that enduring harm as it manifested itself in those stairs and other racial disparities. So here in this moment, a bill was introduced to do that. Every black elected official in the assembly supported, the governor has articulated his support for it. But the challenge is that when we went to the leadership of the legislature, I'll be very honest, in the conversation we had with Speaker Craig Coughlin, we said, Speaker Coughlin, we would love for you to support the reparations task force bill, which by the way, only creates a task force. You all who've worked with elected officials know that very often when elected officials don't want to do something, they create a task force. The task force meets, it issues a report, report often sits somewhere like that, right? We wanted to really be a state that would lead the way in having a thoughtful conversation about race, about racism, the enduring harm of slavery, and then use the policy proposals to actually begin to repair that harm. So in the meeting with Speaker Craig Coughlin, he said, look, Ryan, I would support the task force today if you would just call it something else. Like, why do you have to use the word reparations? That word, it, it unsettles people. It, it makes people uncomfortable. If you call it a, a, an equity task force or a racial wealth gap task force or a home ownership task force, I support it. But the reparations, I just, that's not a, that's not a word. That's not a word I'm, I'm comfortable saying. Now, this is important in New Jersey because in this year, in November, there's an election for every seat in the legislature. And the governor's running for election. And if you can't muster the courage in an election year to say the word reparations, it's hard to imagine when you could find it. So New Jersey did this very interesting thing. We're pushing for a reparation task force. New Jersey, how about this? Not ready for the reparations task force, but how about if we give you Juneteenth as an official state holiday? Now, I know I'm running a long, long, long time here at Kills. So I just want to unpack this very, very quickly, right, because there's a real – this is an important symbolic first step. 
I think folks know what Juneteenth is. If you don't, just Google it. You'll find very quickly what Juneteenth is. But Juneteenth, at its root, is a celebration of freedom. And it's a celebration of the day two and a half years after enslaved black folks were actually told they were free, that they learned they were free in Galveston, Texas. And communities across the country each year celebrate Juneteenth, right? Celebration of freedom. Historically, though, New Jersey rejected the Emancipation Proclamation, right? So if it was up to New Jersey, we wouldn't have a basis to celebrate Juneteenth because we rejected it. We also rejected the 13th and 14th and 15th Amendments. We were not actually a state historically that was a beacon for democracy. We were actually a, we were an example of how you oppress black people. So if you, as we have, celebrate Juneteenth, before you deal with the underlying reality that we rejected Juneteenth, you celebrate too soon. And this is one of the challenges of symbolism only. We see it a lot. We've seen cities and counties and other states paint Black Lives Matter on the streets, right? We've seen the toppling of statues. We've seen celebrations of Juneteenth. I'm not diminishing those symbolic celebrations, but there is a danger if you do symbolism only. You celebrate too soon. But the fact is that New Jersey celebrated Juneteenth for the first time as a state holiday back in June. So we decided, you know what, we're going to take that holiday and try to do something substantive. So on that day, we launched a campaign uh, channeling Speaker Craig Coughlin, who was reluctant to say the word. We launched a campaign on Juneteenth called Say the Word, Reparations This Juneteenth. And we uh, had a march and a rally more than 500 people joined us as part of this effort, again, to say the word reparations. The thinking is, look, if we just say the word enough times, it won't sting as much. You'll actually be comfortable dealing with what the word means. So we say the word reparations. I almost feel like we should together just say the word reparations together. Speaker Craig Coughlin, say the word reparations. Senate President Steve Sweeney, say the word reparations. Governor Phil Murphy, say the word Reparations. The reason this bill hasn't yet moved in New Jersey, this is a real function of race, just totally honest, is that three white men have been reluctant to move the bill. I mean, that's a painful reality of race that we're all on the line. We're mostly lawyers. We know how data drives cases. We know what case law is. It's not that we don't have facts, figures, or data. It's just there's not the political will to get three white men, not only to say the word, but to champion the creation of a task force. And that is going to be the charge I give to you in a few slides. But on that day, plenty of folks are saying the word. More than 500. A diverse coalition of faith leaders, uh, local partners, the Newark NAACP. I think I saw Rick Robinson on the line here earlier. He represented, along with a number of other partners, to come out on that day on Juneteenth to use the energy of the day to say the word for reparations. And this was a rally at City Hall where the, the march culminated with our federally elected uh, congressmen, congresswomen, uh, Congress representatives, Bonnie Watson Coleman and Donald Payne here, and our lieutenant governor, first black lieutenant governor in New Jersey, who said this, that this conversation has to be about reparations. And here's the action. So I mentioned every seat is up in the New Jersey legislature this year, 120 seats, Senate, the Assembly, governors are in free election. So you can go to 400yearsnj.org to urge your elected officials to say the word to move this legislation or withhold, I would urge you to withhold your vote if they're not supportive of it. 
with our collective advocacy, I promise you it'll move. Without it, it won't, right? And my final slide is it comes to us from Amanda Gorman. You all saw her, incredible poet on um, President Biden's inauguration day, where she said, while we have our eyes on, on the future, history has its eyes on us. And I love that because I think we're in this moment where both the future and the history that we've inherited they look to us to ask us, what are we going to do to repair harm? And I will say passing a New Jersey reparations task force is something that we have to do. Uh, thank you so much. Ryan, thank you so much for, uh, for those words. And uh, reparations, I'm going to say the word just as you, you, uh, you, you put out the call. In the words of Dr. Martin Luther King, Jr., uh, we got to get the language right. And so that's where it starts. And we, we have to have this conversation. I'm, I'm glad for you and all the leadership you've been providing um, for us on that. And uh, the other thing I would, I would lift up is individual acts of heroism. Are, it, it may not be enough. So we have to start uh, coming at this in advocacy and system-wide level. So thank you again, Ryan. Um, we're going to try to move this along. Okay. I'm, um, I'm sorry, Kiel. I just want to break in with the CLE code word. Um, so the first CLE code word is stand. S-A-N-D. Um, some children, when they go to the beach, like to play in the sand. Sand. Um, there were also, Kilji, do you want to take, there were a few questions, comments. Did you want to do that now or do you want to pause for that, wait for that? Um, maybe we could try to put that at the end. Okay, we just, we'll do. We get to all the speakers. Um, I, it is my pleasure to announce uh, Crystal Crawford um, from the Western Center on Law and Poverty. She's the executive director. Um, and similar to the Legal Services of New Jersey, advocates for the rights of low-income folk uh, in, in her home, in her state of California, um, which recently saw passage of a new reparations law. So, Crystal, thanks for joining us from, all, from across the country. Thank you so much for having me. I uh, went to Teaneck High School in New Jersey, so I have much, much love for New Jersey, and as well as my adopted home of California, and just such a pleasure to be with you all. And I'll just be sharing a few words before I pass the mic to our esteemed chair of our reparations task force in California, who I'm so proud of. And uh, we have several close friends and uh, several of my mentees who speak so highly of Camilla, and uh, we're just so happy to have her in that role. I just want to cue up a few things about kind of the journey and Western Center's thoughts about being a good partner in this work. Western Center is very, I'm the first woman of color, black woman to be uh, head of Western Center. You know, we've been around for over, five, over five decades and advocating on behalf of Californians experiencing poverty um, in every branch of government, from the courts to the legislature, of course, administrative advocacy. And um, one of the things when I agreed to take this job at Western Center a little over a year ago, one of the things that I so appreciate about Western Center is it knows how to come alongside community leaders and not try and step into the spotlight like it's all about Western Center and, and it's us driving and pushing this work. Yes, we do our part. We come alongside of uh, great community leaders like Camilla and Marcus and Natalie Champion who connected me with Camilla who are very involved in the ADOS movement and we make sure that we weigh in on these important issues and let our voices be heard. So that's how, you know, when I think about AB 3121, which was our Respirations Task Force bill, which um, was um, championed by our current Secretary of State, former Assemblywoman uh, Shirley Weber, uh, professor, esteemed advocate uh, in the community in the San Diego area and throughout the state. You know, it was really an opportunity for Western Center to come alongside 
Secretary of State Weber and also community advocates who are calling for this task force to call out anti-blackness um, and to really lift up how we need to address the vestiges of slavery and discrimination, right? Um, and how that all plays out, incarceration rates, housing challenges, employment, education issues, the racial wealth gap and opportunity gaps. Um, we really needed to make sure that our voice was heard to say, this is an important historic moment. We as Western Center stand alongside all the community advocates and legislators pushing for this task force and that we really wanted to make sure that um, we were taking a series of intentional, act actionable uh, steps to address racial equity investment. Not afraid to call the R word reparations, but knowing that these are racial equity investments that we are owed as, as uh, black folks in the state of California based on the history of racism and discrimination. As you all know, systemic racism is part of the DNA of the U.S., and it's also part of the DNA of California, and it perpetuates white supremacy. So all that we can do to make a stand in California and help lead the way for other states to make similar stands, and then also to, of course, be supportive of what's happening on the federal level. We have to work in both spaces, right? H.R. 40 been introduced every year since 1989, and now seeing some traction this year, that's exciting. And we as uh, Western Center are particularly excited about just standing alongside all the other warriors that are working on this issue. A um, couple things I'll share before I uh, pass the mic to Camilla is that, you know, people see California as kind of this place of freedom, right? That, didn't, that racism didn't really impact as greatly. And that is a false narrative. One example is, um, it, uh, about 170 years ago, there was a fugitive slave law um, put on the books in California, and some people don't know that. So that means, um, you know, slavery wasn't just an issue in the South, it was an issue in California. And California just has a very complicated history of unfree labor. Um, California put into effect a fugitive slave law, and slaveholders who brought enslaved folks to California could uh, continue to hold them as slaves. Um, and so after that, there were also groups of folks waiting uh, to continue to like perpetuate slavery and continue to lift it up in our history in California. 30% of Californians uh, that came here at that time were from the South. And so, you know, that whole notion of kind of California is different, uh, California is not the same. California is a mirror of the nation and has struggled with these issues of racial oppression um, and, and the dehumanization of, of folks of color, particularly black folks. Um, the fugitive slave law ended in 1855, so it was, it was in effect for three years, but it really uh, reinforced people holding slaves for, for many, many years in California. Um, and then the last thing I want to just share is that, you know, we have to make greater state investments while we push for the federal investments around reparations. Um, it's, it's not an either-or uh, uh, game. It's really a both-and game. And we want to make sure as Western Center that we are walking alongside um, our leader of our uh, chair of our reparations task force here in California, along with all the other community partners and other uh, task force members who are really pushing to make 
this commission, this task force process, an impactful one that will not just be like like Ryan was saying, you know, people hear task force and say, oh, nothing's going to happen. It's a task force. No, 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 no. We have a historic opportunity to make sure that this task force results in action that's going to make a difference in the daily lives of Californians, black Californians, Californians across the board, because this is an issue for all of us. The injustice that, has, that we've borne as, uh, as black folks in California is, is an injustice that is uh, the responsibility of the entire state from a systemic structural standpoint to make sure that we address. Um, so that is what I wanted to share. Western Center is so uh, pleased to be here today. Thank you for the invitation, Akil. So great to meet you, Ryan, and Kenya. I've heard such great things about your work, and we look forward to partnering with you all in any way we can as well. And um, California's doing this thing, y'all, and we want, we want your support to walk alongside us. So please advise us as we walk through this process. Um, and, and let us know if you see things that we should be doing differently, things that are uh, red flags, yellow flags, like this is a team effort, and we, uh, you all are now part of the California team to uh, help us make sure that this process is successful and results in some real uh, impact, impactful change uh, at, at when we get to the end of it. So that is, that's what I'll share, and then I don't know, Akil, if you want to introduce Camila officially, even though I queued her up. Uh, so proud of our commission, uh, our task force chair. Absolutely. I just want to say thank you to you, Crystal, um, for uh, for joining the conversation and for sh for sharing your perspectives. Um, you said it, team effort, team effort. So I think having all all players at the table who uh, are very interested in moving this reparations forward um, is it, it's, it's key. So thank you, thank you for that. Um, now, if we could um, to esteem, do you want to only Camilla Moore? Hi, excuse me. Hi, everyone. Thank you for the invite, um, Akil. Thank you, Crystal, for queuing me up. I echo on all of your sentiments. Um, just to give a quick, I guess, I, I really want to reserve most of my time for questions because I'm sure there are lots of questions that I would love to address or just be a part of like a more di a dynamic conversation. Um, so I'll keep my comments brief. But in my comments, I would like to, you know, give some background on the history of AB 3121, um, an, an overview of the work, um, and then kind of tell a story about um, uh, the history of California's role in maintaining uh, slavery. Um, and so in terms of the history of AB 3121, um, as Crystal um, eloquently said, and this is a bill that was championed by uh, then Assembly Member Shirley Weber. She's now the Secretary of State of California. Uh, she was the lead author of the bill, but um, there were grassroots organizers on the ground every step of the way that um, made sure that that bill passed and got to Governor Newsom's desk, right? So those grassroots organizers are some of the names that Crystal even mentioned, right? You have Natalie Champion, Marcus Champion, uh, Chad, uh, Chad Brown, uh, Tiffany, um, Tiffany Quarles from NAASD and CJEC, these are, you know, local and state grassroots organizations, state level grassroots organizations in California that worked alongside with Assembly Member Shirley Weber um, to ensure the bill passed, right? And so something that's unique about AB 3121, most of the language is modeled after the uh, HR 40, which is the federal um, legislation on reparations, right? 
But there are some are two key distinctions that you know these grassroots organizers that I mentioned help to um, implement into the bill. So one of those the distinctions between HR 40 and AB 3121 is that in AB 3121 there is language that says that this is uh, this is a reparations task force that studies that that is tasked to study and develop reparations proposals with special consideration for African Americans who are descendants of persons enslaved in the United States. So in the HR 40 bill, you know, it's just reparations task force to study and develop proposals for African Americans. But in AB 3121, you have that special consideration language for descendants of persons enslaved in the United States. So it's making a, a bit of a distinction that, you know, we can maybe talk about later, um, but I would encourage folks to kind of look, look through that because there's a, a, a conversation around that. Um, right now. And then the second distinction, but it's not necessarily a distinction, but it's something to highlight. In AB 3121, there is a provision in the bill that states that whatever comes out of the California Task Force in terms of recommendations or proposals, it is not to supersede or preempt any federal responsibility. So basically, there's a provision on, in the AB 3121 state bill that says the federal government should not be off the hook in the event that, you know, the state comes up with and develops reparations proposals for African Americans, because that's really important, because although this is a state reparations task force and mandate, the task force is sending out a message that the federal government is primarily responsible for the institution of slavery in this country and should be held responsible on the federal level um, and should give our reparations to Black Americans um, on that precept. So I just wanted to kind of give some a procedural type of overview, um, technical overview um, of the significance of this state bill in particular. So just in general, it's a two-year process. Um, we're, we're also publishing a two-part report. So the first part of the report will be released um, early May of 2022. And then the second um, or the final uh, part of the report will be released um, the following year. Um, and so alongside with our two-part report, we're going to have a series of hearings throughout these uh, two years that covers um, not only the history of slavery um, and discrimination against Black Americans in the state of California, but in the United States as well. We're really trying to be as comprehensive as possible. We're going to bring in experts um, from various different fields. So for instance, our first real substantive hearing actually is scheduled for September 23rd and September 24th, so in a few weeks. Um, and the topic for those two days will, will, be, will be covering uh, the transatlantic slave trade, the institution of slavery, and um, the impetus and implications of the Great Migration. Um, at the end of this, um, of my presentation, I will send out some links in, links in the chat because we're actually posting our agenda for the September 23rd and 24th hearing today. Um, if you look at the bill AB 3121, the California Department of Justice is tasked with providing a nine member task force with legal, administrative and technical assistance. So we're really relying kind of on the DOJ to you know, send out the materials in a timely manner and things like that. So I can give out that information and say the DOJ is planning on um, sending out our agenda today. So I will definitely send out um, some links to that later in my presentation. Um, but 
to wrap up my comments, I wanted to share um, a quick story um, because as, as Crystal said, and it, it relates to something that Ryan said as well, a lot of the times when we think about the states of California and New Jersey, you know, northern states and western states, we don't really think that they were complicit in the institution of slavery or the subjugation of black folks in this country um, or to the extent of, of, of southern states. But as we are, you know, learning more, we're realizing that that's not necessarily true. The Western states and the Northern states were just as complicit with slavery um, and the subjugation of Black Americans as these Southern states. And that's the kind of the narrative that we have to continue to amplify. Um, and so, uh, for instance, the ACLU of Northern California, they have done some amazing, amazing work. They've actually created a podcast that um, is called Gold Chain. And it, it discovers or it discusses the hidden history of slavery in California. Um, and just as Crystal Crawford uh, eloquently stated, there was a fugitive slave law in the state of California, um, which contradicted, right, um, the, the Constitution of California, right, that outlawed slavery. But I just want to give a quick uh, story um, about three formerly enslaved Black men who had built a lucrative mining supply business who were then stripped of their freedom and then deported back to slavery in Mississippi. And this is a story that you can listen to um, on the ACLU podcast called Gold Chain. So in 1849, Charles Perkins, a white Mississippian, set out for California to mine gold with an enslaved man named Carter Perkins. They were soon joined by two other male slaves from the Perkins plantation, Robert Perkins and Sandy Jones, who had been forced to migrate west, leaving their wives and their children behind. The three men went to work for Charles Perkins mining gold. Charles Perkins decided to return to the south and left his slaves in the care of a friend. He agreed to release them on the condition that they work for six months longer. Set free in November 1851, the industrious trio, Carter Perkins, Robert Perkins, and Sandy Jones, launched a business transporting mining supplies in the gold fields near Ophir, California. They earned the equivalent of $100,000 in today's dollars. But in 1852, California lawmakers passed a law that decreed that any Black person who had entered California as a slave before statehood was the legal property of the slaveholder who brought them. So shortly after the law's passage, Charles Perkins, the white Mississippian, filed a legal action in California demanding the return of his human property. He wrote to a cousin who contacted the Placer County Sheriff, whose men seized Carter Perkins, Robert Perkins, and Sandy Jones from their cabin in a midnight rain. A justice of the peace ordered the men deported to Mississippi. The black community mobilized. They raised funds to fight for the men's release. They hired Cornelius Cole, a prominent anti-slavery attorney who argued before the state Supreme Court that since California's constitution banned slavery, the fugitive slave law was unconstitutional. However, pro-slavery justices dominated the court and ordered the men deported. They were quickly forced onto a steamboat with Charles Perkins' representatives. One unconfirmed news report claimed they escaped from captors while their ship was docked in Panama, but their fate is unknown. So that's just one story. I really wanted to 
illustrate and, and give a real-life example and name names, you know, of our ancestors um, um, and, 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 and implicate the role of California in this, in this, this tragic and peculiar institution of slavery. Um, but not only that, right, we know that, you know, California has a history of discrimination when it comes to housing discrimination, redlining, uh, the war on drugs, uh, police terror, you name it. So the task force in California throughout these two years, you know, our mandate is to really go through that entire litany of injustices that Black Americans have gone through. We have a, a monumental mandate. Um, it, it's going to be some um, strenuous um, and tedious work, but I am so confident um, in my other task force members in the community that supports us. Um, and I am so happy to be here and to share any information that I can to ensure that you know this task force is, can be replicated throughout the country because it's needed. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you so much, Camilla. And that, that was an a extremely powerful story. And I think hearing, you know, hearing that, that story and hearing others like it, it, it just cements, you know, the concept that uh, oppression and, uh, and injustice uh, needs to be dealt with and dealt with immediately. So thank you for, for that and for heading up the reparations effort in California. And of course, we're going to be uh, watching very closely as, it, as the task force moves forward and, and your leadership uh, there um, as we, we have much to learn. Um, so I want to give uh, the mic now to uh, Kenya Tyson, the executive director of the Black Massacre Project, and I think it's a, a great segue uh, into her work and as, as well as, as her um, teachings in the area of historical Black massacres and reparations. So um, up, up on to you, Kenya. Thank you, Akil, uh, so much for uh, the invitation to be here. I'd also like to acknowledge the a Garden State Bar Association, where I'm uh, on the executive board, and they were the one to really kind of work with you to um, get me on this uh, panel, um, and to, of course, my esteemed panelists. Um, it's so very good to see you, Ryan, and to meet you, Crystal and Camila, um, and I hope to work with you uh, in the future. Um, all of the work that you're doing is, is physically exciting. I, I have goosebumps at this point. Um, and so I'll try to be brief. I know I, I want to reserve some time for questions, but um, I just want to let you know that the work that I do takes a slightly different approach. So when we think about reparations for Black people in the United States, typically we're thinking about slavery. So that's, uh, you know, uh, the focal point for a very good reason. But um, as uh, Ryan so eloquently stated just a few moments ago, it's not just slavery that has created this crisis that we're in currently. It's slavery and all of the implications of that and, and all of the legislation that took place thereafter and all of the uh, all of the actions that took place from you know the time that we landed here in this in this uh, wasn't even a country a territory uh, to today. And so the work that I do is uh, looks primarily not at slavery and reparations, but uh, it looks at black massacres. You know, it's a pretty literal uh, project. And so I'm going to share a screen. I'm going to share just a few slides uh, with you, um, but I'm going to talk just a little bit about the work uh, that we do, and uh, hopefully we'll have some time for questions for all of us. So bear with me. Okay, so what is the Black Massacre Project? Um, again, it's very literal. Uh, 
So the Black Massacre Project is an independent public research project and a social justice initiative that explores historical race massacres perpetrated against communities here in the United States. And so uh, when you think about race massacres, the ones that really, the one that really comes to mind for people these days particularly is Tulsa because they just celebrated, uh, or they just commemorated the 100th anniversary of that particular event. Uh, and I also grew up in a, in a town uh, that was the uh, home of a black massacre as well. I'm a native of Wilmington, North Carolina. And for those of you, particularly, particularly those of us that followed what happened in Washington uh, back in January, um, you know that, Washington, uh, that Wilmington uh, was the home of the only successful coup in the United States. And it really was a black massacre that took place in 1898. And so I had some of this uh, information, so I didn't have it when I was actually living in, in Wilmington. But uh, the thing that I need to share with people or that I love to share with people is that it's not just Tulsa, it's not just Wilmington, it wasn't just Rosewood. There were well over 100 of these events uh, that took place historically. Now, the project that I worked on, the project that I founded, really is only exploring uh, those massacres that took place from 1866 uh, to the 1940s. But these persist across the country and uh, they're actually persisting today. So I wanted to share a little bit about uh, the impetus of this, of this project, some of the work that we've done, some of the projects that we currently are working on and even our mission. So um, this map that you can see here actually was the the impetus of a lot of the research that uh, we do with the project. So I've been uh, also an attorney, of course, but uh, moved into higher ed many, many years ago looking at issues of race and crime, and uh, even specifically at the role of the government in terms of, of crimes committed against its citizens. And so I've been teaching in this area, and again, because I've grown up in a place where, where this has happened, had some knowledge um, but I've stumbled upon this map at some point a few years ago and took it upon myself to start this research project. And all of this, all of the uh, cities that you see here on the left, or maybe on the right, I'm not sure how it's uh, justified here. Um, these are all cities that either I or, or folks on the staff have actually gone into to do some research. And so what... Uh, struck me not only for uh, in my own experience, but people who lived in these cities, like pick any city on this list, probably with the exception of Tulsa or Rosewood. And there were people who grew up in these communities who had absolutely no idea that these massacres even took place. And I don't mean the white citizens of these communities, I mean the black citizens of these communities. And even for me, um, you know, I'm the descendant of activists. Uh, and even my parents and my grandparents, who were very politically active, didn't share this information with me. And there are a lot of reasons why um, that I could go into, but I don't think that we have uh, the time to do so. So these are some of the places where the Black Massacre Project has conducted research. And um, essentially, the journey started for, for me by, you know, actually pulling my green book off the shelf and driving cross country to a number of these cities. And so I literally uh, traveled to uh, 10 states, several of these massacre sites, 
Um, and now that we actually have a small staff, uh, we have the staff doing this research as well. But what's happening right now is we're gathering information. We're going to the archive. We're interviewing the descendants or the survivors because some of the survivors of these events, you know, they're still with us today. And to uh, the earlier point that everyone thinks that this happened a million years ago or a hundred years ago or 200 years ago, there are living survivors of these black massacres that were committed within communities of color across the United States. And so we're interviewing the survivors, the descendants, um, but we're also working with historians, public historians, professors, and activists across the country to gather all of this information together. Um, and I'll talk a little bit about why that's significant when I talk about the mission of this particular project. So one of the reasons, uh, well, so let's talk about the mission, right? So we have a four, uh, we have four uh, points as we, as we talk about our mission. The first one is to foster awareness. We need people to know that these things took place, right? And so sometimes uh, people ask me, well, this is, this is violence porn. Why are you doing this? Why are you dredging up these memories? Or why are you dredging up these uh, events? And so even when we think about Tulsa, you know, I, when I initially talked about that, I said we celebrated it. And then I pulled that back and I said commemorated it. But the one thing that people need to be aware of is that in some ways we want to commemorate these activities. We want to commemorate these crimes. But it also is a celebration of the resilience of these communities. And so there were so many of these black massacres that took place during the Reconstruction period. Um, and even beyond. But part of the reason that these black massacres took place is um, they were a direct response to the mobility of formerly uh, enslaved people across this country. And so as you know, the uh, Freedmen's Act uh, legislation took place, the 13th, 14th, 15th Amendments, and, and the other legislation that was implemented uh, across the country, and people who were formerly uh, enslaved, and even uh, their, uh, the freedmen um, started to acquire land. They started to pool their resources. They started to build unions and universities and hospitals and really get politically active. Um, you know, white supremacists and whites in Southern states and even in some of the Northern and Western states, uh, as Crystal and Camila have, have uh, so rightly pointed out, we're not happy with that uh, breakneck progress, right? Because when we talk about reconstruction, we really aren't talking about a lot of time. Um, you know, we're talking about 1863 to 1877. That wasn't a lot of time. But the amount of progress that formerly enslaved individuals made during that time was astonishing. It was astounding. And so much of what happened with these black massacres was a direct uh, response to political power. We know that during the Reconstruction era, we had over 2,000 uh, Black folks who were in political office or held some type of government post. And within that uh, 2,000, 600 of them were in state government. And even in my hometown of Wilmington, North Carolina, we had people, uh, Black people in local, state, and federal government at that time. And so this was an effort to quash that political power. It was 
an effort to destabilize the economic uh, progress that had been made, the educational progress that had been made. And so when, while we're telling the stories and making this information available to people, we aren't doing it for the purposes of saying, necessarily of saying, look at all of these terrible things that happened. Um, we're also saying, look at these wonderful things that we were able to accomplish. And the massacre that followed was the consequence of that. But even when you're looking at the consequences of that, for instance, people, a lot of people are not aware that even with uh, one of the most mainstream massacres like Tulsa, Oklahoma, Tulsa was destroyed, but, or, or the Greenwood community was destroyed. But what many people don't know is that the community members built it back, right? And then it was destroyed again by, you know, by the government. And so those are the things that we want to convey. We want to make sure that people know that these events took place, um, but we also want them to be familiar with the brilliance and the resilience of the communities that built themselves up um, post uh, slavery and even during slavery. So we want to unearth those, that information. And we also want to make it widely accessible to the public. And so I'll talk about one of the ways that we are, some of the ways that we're trying to make this information accessible to the public in just a moment. Um, we also, as a part of this project, want to look at the implications of these massacres, right? What were the legal implications, cultural, socioeconomic, political? We even look at the trauma, and we have partners that are looking at the collective trauma of the individuals that live in these communities. And so what we're trying to do is identify what those specific harms were, um, what the implications were of the uh, massacres, and, and of course they called them at the time race riots, but that, that took place uh, during this historic, these historical periods. And so that's one thing that we're looking at and how that kind of feeds into the work that you all are doing on the panel is um, we're looking at restorative practices. So we're trying to identify and promote these restorative practices. We don't want to just tell the stories and walk away. We want to tell the stories of what happened in these communities and partner with other organizations to figure out ways that we can restore what these communities lost. And one of the ways that we do that is, uh, of course, uh, through reparations. It's not the only way. And uh, we're looking at a, a variety of different ways that we can uh, build up these communities, again, whether it's doing trauma work, whether it's uh, uh, providing resources for banking, land acquisition, education, all of these things. And we have some really great partners that we're working with. But we're also looking at reparations. And we're looking at it in a different, a slightly different way, right? Because again, we're not talking about something that uh, technically ended in 1865 or 1866. We're talking about events that my mother and certainly my grandmother could have witnessed. And so from a legal perspective, you know, there's some different implications here. Um, one thing that I thought was very interesting about what uh, you were saying earlier, Ryan, is, you know, this concept of saying the word reparations and how that's powerful and how that uh, will open the doors in terms of, uh, you know, movement in, in this particular, uh, uh, on this particular issue. Now, when you think about these black massacres, uh, and those that have been compensated or reparations for those massacres that have been compensated, there aren't very many, obviously. 
But what I think is pretty ironic is that Rose, uh, so Rosewood, Florida, many people are uh, familiar with Rosewood. It's probably and uh, it took place in, uh, of course, it took place in Florida. Um, so they did receive some reparations, right? What they received was $3 million for the survivors, this was, uh, you know, many years ago, and scholarships for the, 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 the descendants. And so the survivors got $3 million. They had a fund in Florida for the survivors, and each of those survivors got a college scholarship of $6,100. So that's, uh, but, and, and there's another massacre in Florida, in Ocoee. And currently, as we speak, the Florida legislature is uh, pulling together some reparations, and I'm using air quotes, uh, if, you can't, if you can't see me, for that particular group as well in the form of scholarships. But the thing that's very ironic about both of these cases is that they refuse to call them reparations, right? No one wants to use the, the word reparations. That they aren't getting through. Uh, the legislature uh, uh, wasn't getting through when they were calling it reparations. Now, I'm not suggesting that we not call it reparations because the amounts that are, have been provided for these descendants and survivors have been nominal. I mean, $3 million. Just think about everything that was destroyed, the lives that were lost, the property that was lost, the banking and all of the, uh, you know, all of the financial implications. Um, and, and they got $3 million, which is not very much money for, for what happened. And so we're looking at reparations in a, in, a, in a different way. But one of the things that we're trying to do as it relates to reparations for the Black massacres is we, we, we see ourselves as a convener. And so what we're trying to do is we're trying to connect the archivists the people who know where the information is, the people who have this information with, with the legal community. Um, we're also trying to connect them with our legislators and our activists. And so what we do know is if we're going to make a case for any of these reparations, whether it's a legal case or a case with our legislature, that we have to have the evidence, we have to have the documentation. And what we're doing is working with a group of archivists who are training um, communities and families on how to preserve this information. One of the things that we've done is we've relied upon uh, the oral tradition uh, to maintain a lot of this information, particularly because we didn't want to talk about it. And so what we're doing is kind of circling back around and aggregating all of this information, and we're putting it in one central location. And I will say just another, moment, uh, just another thing uh, as it relates to that and um, uh, we can move on. But so one of the big projects that we have going is something called a digital compendium. So I talked about over 100 massacres during this time period. And what we're doing is we're pulling resources together for each of these massacres. And they're in the form of uh, documents within archives, uh, in the form of videos, um, any types of artifacts and other accounts of individuals who have either witnessed or experienced these, uh, these events. We're even pulling together uh, music and other types of art that reflect these particular events um, as well. And so we're, we're putting them in a huge digital compendium that anyone will be able to access. And so it's a way for you to get all of this information. 
but also to look at trends as well. And so we know, for instance, the red summer of 1919, there were across, you know, 1919, there were about 60 of these massacres. But even if you look at, you know, the spring to the end of the year, there were quite a few. And just looking at those trends and what was happening in those areas. And so that's something that we're doing um, in one of our bigger projects. The other thing we're doing is we're putting together a reparations conference that, again, looks exclusively at the massacres, not at slavery per se, and uh, connecting our historians, our academics with lawyers and legislators so that we can collectively come up with some strategies and approaches that will uh, serve this, uh, these communities. And then we do a lot of events and outreach as well. Um, right now I'm teaching a, a course at the new school on this particular topic, but we also, as I mentioned, do workshops. Um, we're working on our first uh, walk, a set of walking tours in Louisiana next year. And we've also done some film, uh, film screenings and art exhibits um, that will be widely available either on our website. And, and now that we're hopefully approaching the end of uh, you know, COVID, we're gonna be doing some more in-person things, but we have our Staff is located across the country, um, and so we are planning events across the country to support all of this work. I know we only have a few minutes left, so I want to be considerate of time. So that's all, all I'll say about the project now. Uh, if you are interested in the project, um, here's our contact information. Um, I would be happy to speak to anyone who's uh, interested, has interest in this. Um, and uh, thank you so much, Akil, and, and to the other panelists. And uh, I look forward to hearing any questions you may have. Thank you so much, Kenya. That's, um, it's, it's great to and, and refreshing to take a look at reparations in that way. You mentioned something, uh, the Green Book. Just for folks who may or may not be aware of what exactly that is, can you give a few words on, what that, on that, that context and meaning? Absolutely. So the Green Book was a, an actual, a physical Green Book that was put together for black folks who were traveling across this country so they would know where the safe locations were. And as a black person traveling in the United States, whether you were in South or even in the North, you needed to know which gas stations you would be welcome at, which hotels, which barbershops, um, which restaurants. And so this book was a guide long before Yelp. It was, it was kind of like Yelp before we had computers, and, but it was focused on the safety and well-being of traveling black folks. And so there were several editions of that, and I have a few of those. Uh, and some of those locations are still uh, thriving today. So that's what it is. Great. Thanks for, thanks for that, Kenya, giving that perspective. Um, I'd like to thank, first of all, all of our panelists for, for their presentations. And now, if we can, open it up to, to some questions. We've got a number of questions that have come in through our, our Q&A. And uh, why don't we dive right in and see whoever wants to, to jump on the question. But I think Rachel has a question. Sorry, I do. So while we, I know we have some already in the Q&A. And while we're waiting for more, I just want to give the second and final uh, New Jersey CLE code word. It is WAVE, W-A-V-E. Uh, my daughter asked me yesterday if we could have a tidal wave in New Jersey. Wave, W-A-V-E. Thanks, Akil. Back sure. to you. Let me know if you get that answer as to what the tidal wave question. Um, but so for back to our panel, um, the question. So there's some questions in the Q&A, and um, let's just uh, jump right in. There was a question here. Um, I'm wondering if anyone can speak to how reparations have been accomplished in other countries. 
Germany and or others, and following that, those models here in the U.S., how that can be accomplished. So if anyone has thoughts or wants to jump in. Um, I, I guess I could touch on that. Um, so, yeah, I, I studied international law, and, and I wrote a thesis on repertory justice for the transatlantic slave trade, the institution of slavery um, under international law standards. And so I, I've done some type of, like, comparative um, anal analytical work between, like, reparations programs uh, throughout different countries, things like that. So, uh, for instance, the country of Germany, they have paid uh, reparations to survivors of the Holocaust and um, uh, important distinction in, in certain terms to descendants um, of those Holocaust survivors. So not necessarily to direct victims of the Holocaust, but to um, their descendants. Um, and that was specially negotiated by um, particular entities and organizations. Uh, you have, you know, the United Kingdom who paid out reparations to um, uh, Kenyans um, that were victimized by the Mau Mau Rebellion. Um, you have, um, well, those are like the, the major two that I would kind of highlight. Um, the Caribbean uh, through CARICOM has tried to hold their former colonizers responsible, like the UK, the Netherlands. Spain um, accountable uh, for reparations. They're still kind of um, struggling um, for that. Um, but those three um, uh, uh, countries that I mentioned or those three instances that I mentioned are some of the major examples in terms of international law uh, where victims of racial injustice or, or uh, violence have been compensated. Um, yeah, so in the cases of Germany with the Holocaust, uh, UK and Kenya with the Mau Mau Rebellion, um, and Caribbean and their former colonizers. And also notably, South Africa has aimed to, um, they gave out $3,900 to victims of apartheid crimes in, in 2003, um, but that was not even enough, right, to, to cover the, the large majority of Blacks in South Africa who were victims of, of the apartheid. It only covered, I think, no more than 30,000 people. Can I, can I just weigh in there? Um, so I appreciate yeah, Camilla's point. I would just add to it. It's important. I think it's important to do two, two things as part of this conversation to just co to concretize all that has been heard. One is to be really clear about what we're trying to repair, right? So we're trying to repair the enduring harm from slavery. So I am really fortunate, as I mentioned, to lead an organization of some incredible racial and social justice advocates, most of whom are lawyers. And we do policy work, so work around $15 minimum wage, work around building into policing, a system of accountability that we've never had. All, like those things are important, but those are not necessarily reparations. Right? Reparations is a specific response to harm that has flown from slavery that we continue to live with. And so to make that very concrete, in New Jersey, right, we don't suffer in New Jersey from models about how to do it. To Camilla's point, other countries have done it. Other cities are moving in a direction to begin, you know, Evanston, Illinois is an interesting one that um, is going to write checks to some number of black descendants of, of, of slavery. So I, I really want to resist reducing reparations to a check writing exercise, right? Because we don't know, as we sit here, what the total investment would be 
even begin to have that conversation. That racial wealth gap was designed in slavery, right? The reason it's so vast is because it was designed to be that way. So we need to actually think about what kinds of systems, practices, policies do we build that begin to connect black communities to the wealth they were separated from. And you can't do that just off the top of the head. That's why, to Camilla's point, I think the task force is the very best way to assemble the most thoughtful people, including historians, sociologists, economists, historians, like a number of folks. If you, if you litigated a race-based case, you would know that you're, you have, that's one of the most complex issues, and so to accompany the complex issues, you have experts who speak to each one. But in New Jersey, the reason the bill hasn't moved is not because we don't know what to do. We have just not mustered the political courage to do it. And the reason we haven't mustered the political courage to do it is because we haven't had enough constituents. On this line are 200 people. Shout out to Ellis and Jay for assembling 200 folks on a Monday afternoon to have a Zoom conversation about reparations. But it would be a shame to leave this conversation and not be clear about what to do next. So I just want to, I want to make that point. So it's easy. Every seat is up in New Jersey. All we're asking for is a reparations task force. It hasn't moved because constituents haven't been um, encouraging their elected officials, I use that word charitably, to move legislation in an election year. 400 years, nj.org is an easy tool. And if you live in Coughlin's district, in Sweeney's district, or whoever's district you live in, ask your elected officials at the state level, do they support Will they champion? Will they support this bill? It's easy. Like, that's a concrete, because we can have a lot of conversations way out there about how you do it, whether you do it, when you do it. But the truth is, it won't move unless we concretize our individual and collective advocacy. 400yearsnj.org is a way to do that. I just want, I want, because I think in these conversations, it's, it's easy to think about them purely as academic ones. Well, how will you do it? What are the countries have done it? Is it possible? All of that is the province of the task force, right? The reason that the task force is so important is because this conversation is both enduring and expansive. And until we have a place to have it, we won't actually have it. So I don't want to miss that. 400 years, NJ, the ORG. Every elected official is up for re-election. They shouldn't be voting. You shouldn't vote for them if they don't at least support this legislation, among other things. Thanks, Ryan. That's a, it's, that's a call to action. It's a call to action. Um, but I did want to, to just take a, a, a pivot back into uh, some of the, the broader uh, question. And that is, and Camilla touched on this a little bit when she talked about the focus of the task force versus the federal legislation. In, in terms of direct descendants, um, what is required or what do you think should be required in, within the, the universe of reparations? I mean, I can see it as black communities. Um, but is it, does it need to be narrowly tailored to direct descendants? Or, or what about those who have come here since slavery and, and, and still experience some of the hardships and the, um, the oppression? Um, just if, if, if uh, any of the speakers had thoughts on, on that. Well, I'll, I'll just speak up. Uh, you know, obviously the work that uh, we're doing is a little different and, you know, can be uh, trace back to uh, really specific uh, populations of people. But I really think in some ways it just kind of depends on the harm, right? Because again, this goes back to a specific harm. And 
there were freedmen, to, to your point, Camila, when you talked about the distinction with the, the California legislation, there were freedmen who experienced harm, um, maybe not the exact same harm as those who were enslaved, but if you can tie it back to the specific type of harm, that I think will determine the population of people who should be entitled to the reparations. I would say I, I agree with Kenny. I think a harm-based model um, in determining eligibility is is important. And I will say that um, eligibility is a topic that will be uh, discussed in detail, not only in our um, hearings, the public hearings, but in the written report. It'll be in the second part of the written report. So, you know, this is a discussion that the nine task force members will have to have um, in public in terms of how we see, you know, eligibility for reparations and how that could look like um, in the state of California. But I will maybe amplify a book um, called From Here to Equality, a Reparations for Black Americans in the 21st Century. It was written by William A. Darity and Kirsten Mullen, um, his partner. Um, and it's a phenomenal book. And in that book, they have a, a section on eligibility for reparations for Black Americans on the federal level and they provide a two-part test or two-prong test. So the first prong would be that you um, have identified yourself as Black or African American on government or records for the past 10 years. And then the second prong is that you have at least one, I believe, uh, parent or grandparent or descendant um, of chattel slavery. Um, so that, 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 that's a, a potential kind of eligibility test that I, I could provide um, kind of concretize some of the conversations around this issue in the reparation space. I would just add there's a really uh, good book called Repair written by Catherine Frankie. She's a law professor at uh, Columbia. And it, it, to Camilla's point, it talks about some of the reinvestments in black communities as also a piece of recommendation she makes around an intergenerational tax on wealth to disgorge unjust enrichment. Um, so I think this is a good a good read as well. And then on on our website, which is I saw in the chat, there was a question: is njisj.org. You can find the um, erasing New Jersey's red lines, and there's a discussion of the history I shared, but also some policy recommendations about how to fill in the cracks of uh, racism in our foundation, including the reparations task force, but also some some housing policy. There was another question about housing. Yes, so the that racial wealth gap, the, the primary driver of the racial wealth gap is home ownership, right? Yeah, I'm sitting in Newark, right, where our office is based, where I live. Newark is a city that is comp about, I think, about 20% of people in Newark are homeowners, right? And if home ownership is, is the primary driver of wealth, and 80% of the people in the city don't own their homes. How do you, right, that too is a function of slavery, but how do you build wealth where home ownership is so elusive? And then the other layer is, and when you own your home in Newark, it's not valued at the work, at its, at its work. So my house in Newark, if it were in Milburn, New Jersey, would be about, you know, quadruple the price. Now, like that too is a function of race and slavery. So the home ownership piece is really a complicated one, but that's the primary driver of the racial wealth gap. And as I talked about at the very top, 
for us in New Jersey, the way we designed homeownership was itself a system designed in slavery. And I'll just chime in to say on the home ownership uh, note, please, if you haven't seen it yet, go to uh, segregatedbydesign.com. Got a 15-minute animated video that is beyond powerful, breaking down how uh, housing was used to basically further, um, you know, the economic divide, and uh, it's just extremely powerful. We used it uh, this summer at our college reunion to have a launch a social justice discussion amongst uh, some folks who might not be as uh, vigorous advocates for this, and it really was very compelling and helped folks kind of have that aha moment of, oh, shoot. Look how far back this goes and how designed um, this system of oppression was beyond the, um, you know, beyond slavery. Thanks. Those are words that I'm going to hang on to, that, that this was by design uh, from many, many uh, generations and decades ago. And that's, that's the painful thing that we need to confront, I, I, I think. Um, it looks like we're at about the end of our time. Um, I wanted to thank... Uh, from the bottom of my heart, Ryan Haygood, uh, Crystal Crawford, Kenya Tyson, Camilla Moore, Rachel, um, everybody for joining us today for this conversation. Um, I learned a ton. I hope you all did too. And hopefully we can move the conversation forward as well as move uh, some of all those pieces that uh, all the, the folks are talking about today, uh, moving it forward. Good afternoon. My name is Matthias Wasser, and I'm the director of the Carr Center for Human Rights Policy at the Harvard Kennedy School. And it is my great pleasure also on behalf of my colleague Sushma Raman to welcome our distinguished speakers and you, our audience, to this episode in our webinar series on the fierce urgency of now. On a weekly basis this whole semester long, we have addressed challenges that one way or another are matters of economic justice at the intersection of racial justice. And today our topic is reparations, specifically reparations for African-Americans, a topic of rather central concern at this intersection between racial and economic justice in the United States. Now, one way or another, uh, demands for reparation have been around for many decades, even centuries, and we will learn a bit more about that uh, today from uh, our speakers. In recent years, however, the topic of reparations specifically for African Americans came to be of some prominence in the wake of one particular publication, namely Tanahasi Coates' article, The Case for Reparations, that appeared in 2014 in the the magazine The Atlantic, so that it's because of that article that I think there has been a lot more public awareness and debate about this subject than we've seen before. The basic case that specifically Coates makes is that there is a fundamental misunderstanding of American history, and once we get that misunderstanding cleared up, the case for systematic transfers of sorts to African Americans is pretty straightforward. And that misunderstanding is goes something like this. Slavery ended in 1865, and since then, African Americans have had opportunities comparable to everybody else who uh, arrived or had been in the United States. Opportunities, however, that African Americans specifically have often squandered, and as a result, they formed a pathological culture that explains their shortfall in wealth creation over the decades, right? That's the that's the that's the, the story that many people I think um, subscribe to, 
And but as African Americans themselves have always known, and as the broader public has increasingly come to realize over the years, virtually every important institution, public or private, in the United States has a history of not only neglecting African Americans, but of actually extracting resources from them. One area for which this is true in rather striking ways, and that's also the emphasis in the uh, in, in Tanahasi Coates' article in the Atlantic, is housing policy. As part of, uh, as, a, as a part of federal housing, federal housing policy in the 20th century, many white people for much of the 20th century had access to mortgages in ways that individually allowed them to start intergenerational wealth building and that often collectively allowed them to develop their neighborhoods and then especially also to generate enough property taxes to enable their children to get a good start in, uh, in life in the local schools that then could be funded from the higher property taxes that a, that a thriving neighborhood could, uh, a thriving municipality could generate. But as opposed to that, black people could become homeowners only by engaging with predatory lending practices, which not only undercut any process of intergenerational wealth building, but also led to a devaluation of housing stock in black neighborhoods, which then also meant there was no tax base to generate the property taxes uh, that would have been needed to fund good schools. The net result of all of that has been that the median family net worth of a white family in the United States in 2016 was about 170,000, and that of a black family was less than 20,000. So a dramatic, uh, truly dramatic difference there. However, with all that said, what in particular the presidential election this year, and you know what we are still working through here, has made clear. Uh, again, if, that were, it were, if it was necessary to learn that again, is that very large parts of the American public are not only not interested in having debates about reparations and about the underlying views about American history and the extent to which all of that has been shaped by white supremacy, but on the contrary, that very large parts of the American public will actually mobilize politically and support candidates who will undermine the very legitimacy of such debates. To them, any talk about white supremacy and reparations is toxic. So basically, we have seen two things in recent years, that we have, we have seen an increasing awareness of these issues in large parts of the population, and we have seen an increase in strength of aversion to that very same debate. So in a way, it's kind of mirroring the election outcome that we saw, right? more intensity on the, on the various sides involved. And that leads to this question now that we very much have as a school of public policy that many concerned citizens have that all of us who are operating in this, in this intersection between racial and economic justice, where does all this leave us now? So in that context, then, we are truly delighted to have with us today two very distinguished guests who uh, have thought and have done a lot of activism uh, around these topics for, for a long time. So we will first turn in a moment to... Dr. Raymond Arnold Winbush, who is also known as Kikari Bioko, uh, who is a scholar and activist known for his systematic thinking about the impact of white supremacy on the global black community, so not just the United States, but more uh, also thinking about these matters very much in a global perspective. And, uh, and Dr. Winbush has been with these topics for a number of topics, has worked on, on themes like uh, public policy and its connection to compensatory justice, the infusion of African studies into school curricula, and then also the impact of hip-hop hip -hop culture on uh, the contemporary American landscape. 
He is currently a research professor and director of the Institute for Urban Research at Morgan State University in Baltimore, Maryland. Uh, and he is one of the main contributors really in, in research and advocacy, he has done all of that very extensively over the decades around the subject of reparations. So we're delighted to have you uh, with us here today. And then our second speaker is going to be Yvette Modestin, who is a writer, a poet, and an activist who focuses on shedding light on the Afro-descendant experience in Latin America. Yvette uh, was born and grew up in Panama and is the founder and executive director of Encuentro Diaspora Afro in Boston. So right here, she is based right here with us in the Boston area. She was named as one of the 30 most influential Afro-Latinas in the world and has been profiled by the Boston Globe as a uniter for her work in bringing the Latin American and African American communities together. And uniter certainly is exactly what we need at this stage in uh, in history. As an artist and a licensed mental health clinician and a wellness facilitator, Yvette speaks to the acknowledgement of the historical pain of people of African descent and the awareness of the connection that would lead to the healing of our communities. So I will now first turn over uh, to uh, Ray, then Yvette will take over, and then uh, Sushma will come in for the moderation of the uh, Q&A. And uh, you in the audience uh, should feel free at any time to put your questions and comments in the chat function of the YouTube channel uh, over there. And with uh, with all that said, without further ado, welcome uh, to to the to our two distinguished speakers, and over to uh, to Dr. Winbush. Thank you, Matias, uh, and thank you, Susma, too, for you know inviting uh, Yvette and I to speak to you about what we consider one of the most important topics right now on the issue of justice for African people here. And I'll also like to thank the Carr Center for Human Rights Policy at Harvard University for this. So what I'm going to do, Yvette and I talked about me talking briefly about history and then her talking about the entire, you know, impact of re uh, reparations right now as it relates to what she's doing right now. So I'm going to try to summarize in a few minutes. Let me see. Let me get this screen share going. Okay. Let's see. We're almost there. Okay, can everybody see that? I hope so. Um, I want to just give a, a brief introduction to reparations for the European enslavement of Africans. Uh, so I'm going to try to summarize in eight or ten minutes what has been going on for 579 years since Africans were first stolen from their homelands in the, on the continent. I think this quote by Ralph Wiley summarizes almost everything that I feel about reparations and the United States. Give me the free labor of one black person for one year, I would be a rich man. Give me the free labor of a dozen black people for 12 years, I would be a very rich man. Give me the free labor of millions of black people for 250 years, I would be America. So slavery is considered by the UN and other international groups as a crime against humanity. 
it's very important to remember that because there are no statutes of limitations on a crime against humanity. And I'm not going to go through these nine areas, but trust me that African people throughout the world have experienced all of them, murder, enslavement, deportation, and so forth. So it's just the way it has been for the past 400, nearly 500 years. Um, the issue of reparation has a long history among American Africans. Uh, there's a picture here of Elizabeth Freeman. She was otherwise known as Mumbet, lived in Massachusetts, of all places, and she was the step-great-great-grandmother of none other than a Harvard alum, W.E.B. Du Bois. Uh, she was one day going to hit, her mistress was going to hit another servant, and Mumbet jumped in front of her and she hit her with a heated shovel and there was a wound on her arm that she left open for many months. She hired an attorney in 1781 named Theodore Sedgwick and she sued and as far as we know the first recorded lawsuit about suing for freedom from uh, enslavement. Interesting enough Theodore Sedgwick and this is just one of these asides that I'd like to put in and these lectures. Uh, Theodore Sedgwick is the fourth grandfather of Kyra Sedgwick, the actor, actress right now. She won her case and also 30 shillings for her freedom. And so we go from 1781 to just the next year, 1782, and Belinda Royale Sutton uh, heard about Elizabeth Freeman's case and she sued her so-called master, Isaac Royal, for 50 years of unpaid labor, and she won her case of about 15 pounds and 12 shillings, which is equivalent to about $2,400 a year. What's interesting is that her so-called master, Isaac Royal, fled to Canada at the outbreak of the Revolutionary War, American Revolutionary War, and he was wondering out loud and actually wrote this in a letter. He did not understand why Belinda was so angry at him for, you know, for his enslavement of her. Uh, the other interesting thing about this is that Isaac Royal endowed the School of Law at Harvard in his will and gave its first professorship in his will in 1779. And then we come to the famous you know, phrase among African Americans on the issue of reparations, which is 40 acres and a mule in 1865. On January 16, uh, 1865, General William T uh, Tecumseh Sherman allocated and through his field order 400,000 acres of land on the east coast of the United States, um, uh, places in Georgia, South Carolina, the southern part of North Carolina. Uh, and interesting enough in the legislation, it did not say 40 acres and a mule, but when you sold someone land during those days, a mule was implied in the sale. It was like me be selling a car to you, Mattias, right now and saying it doesn't have an engine in it. You would assume that it had an engine in it. So that's the famous 40 acres and a mule. From there, we move on to Cali House, who organized the first major uh, organization dealing with reparations in this country, uh, the National Ex-Slave Mutual Relief Bounty and Pension Association. Um, 
she got a, in order to do the, become a member, you would join for $2.50 and then pay $0.25 cent a week into this fund. And she actually organized over 600,000 people during this time. In 1915, she sued the government of the United States for $68 million. And she said that was the amount of cotton collected between 1862 and 1868 in the United States. And she wanted that for the 600,000 uh, enslaved Africans, or formerly enslaved Africans. Uh, in that same year, she was uh, indicted for mail fraud, which she did not commit, and spent one year in jail and wound up dying in um, Nashville, Tennessee. So, and you got to understand that the the post office in those days would almost be the equivalent of Facebook, and they used it to make sure that she did not get the pensions for the ex-slaves that many Confederate soldiers had gotten. Queen Mother Moore, uh, many, many years later, uh, educated herself by reading the writings of Frederick Douglass and Marcus Garvey. And in 1963, she actually presented to John F. Kennedy uh, on the anniversary of the Emancipation Proclamation, one million signatures petitioning the government for reparations on behalf of the descendants of African slaves. She was a major figure. Women have played a major role in, rep in the reparations struggle to this day. And in 1969, on a Sunday morning in May, uh, as clergy processed into the sanctuary of New York's August Riverside Church, civil rights activist James Foreman uh, vaulted into the pulpit. He actually interrupted the sermon and demanded $500 million uh, for reparations for the mistreatment of African Americans from white churches uh, and synagogues. Um, some of this money was given, but not all of it was. So a definition of reparations quickly is a, it's a payment of a debt owed, and this is in COBRA, the National Coalition of Blacks for Reparations America, uh, the atonement for wrongdoings, to make amends, to make one whole again, and so forth. And some examples of reparations in this country, which are as American as apple pie, uh, $1 billion for the Alaska Native land settlement. Money has gone to the Lakota of South Dakota, the Klamaths of Oregon. And of course, something that we're all familiar with, $1.2 billion for Japanese Americans following their internment in World War II. So opponents to reparations say that reparations are going to divide the races um, even further. Why can't we just leave the past alone? Can't we all just get along? I call this the Rodney King argument. And I think we've always been divided as a nation on the issue of race. Um, uh, I said I was not going to mention anything about the occupier of the White House, but I think that we know that this has always been an issue among uh Americans on the, uh, the issue of racism and how it impacts black folks. Another thing is that opponents of reparations say, but slavery happened a long time ago. Why should I pay for something that I never participated in, nor my family members? I, believe it or not, was not born during World War II and had nothing to do with the detention of Japanese Americans during the war. But in 1988, that radical president 
Ronald Reagan uh, levied a tax on Americans for $1.2 billion for reparations for the internment of Japanese, which was considered a crime against humanity. And the most important thing to remember is that those things that happened during um, enslavement still have impact today uh, on Black folk. And I'm going to leave it now to, uh, to Yvette to talk about how that occurs. Thanks, Ray. Uh, greetings, everyone. Uh, thank you, Matthias and Shushma, for inviting us. Before I start in the tradition of our people, I give thanks to those whose shoulders we stand on and call on them for their resiliency and their fearlessness that uh, continues to guide us on this journey. Um, I wanted to pick up on the, the five injuries. And Ray, can we put that up just for a little bit, um, the, the last slide, um, and, and bring it into today. Um, and I stand here, sit here proudly sharing with you as a National African-American Reparations Commissioner, SONARC, um, and also uh, a member of NCOBRA. And the five injuries came out of the work of NCOBRA led by and chaired by attorney Ajwa Ajatoro, who thought that, you know, how do we bring this down and highlight it? But before I also start, you know, um, as I had, uh, mentioned in my introduction, um, that I am born and raised in Panama. And part of the reparations conversation that's intense is that um, who are the Africans that can have that conversation within the U.S.? And in bringing that Pan-African global perspective is as an African from the Americas and specifically from Panama, I was born and raised into the Jim Crow colonized territory of Panama that was ruled by American laws. Um, so, that is my point of entry in the conversation of seeking reparations for all people of African descent, for all Africans in the Americas, um, especially those who may not have had their direct story here, but direct story with the U.S. impact. And uh, Panama's Canal Zone is, is that. Um, so I wanted to start first, first and foremost, people and nationhood is the destruction of African people's culture. And one of the immediate um, uh, today, because as Ray said, everyone thinks, oh, it happened in the past. It's not happening now. No, it's happening now. One of the immediate examples of the stealing and the taking away of our culture and, and what that does to our ability to move and retain our family structures, our way of living, our way, our, our traditions, uh, speaks to the 1921 Tulsa race massacre. Um, and now the folks in Tulsa have put a reparations case against Tulsa um, because of that massacre that happened. And one of the survivors, uh, 105-year-old Leslie Benningfield-Randall, speaks of still suffering from the emotional and physical distress today, today, 100 years after, um, because of the the dismissal or the the getting away or doing away with what many will call uh, Black Wall Street. Um, as it relates to education, um, you know, the, the first, the issue of reparations and education is the denial of our right to an educate, education started in slavery with criminal sanctions imposed on our enslaved ancestors who learned 
and anyone who taught them to read or write. How interesting that that language applies to 2020 and with the pandemic. And what the pandemic has highlighted is the disparities that exist in our educational system. Students of color were greatly more impacted uh, due to the pandemic and the schooling and what it meant and how they're being taught. Because what also came out is how are they being taught African-American history? Some schools don't even teach African-American history beyond Black History Month. And what does that mean? But a specific, uh, um, also as an organizer in uh, uh, for the Codman Square NDC here in Boston, one of the things around education that we had to deal with that was very specific to reparative justice, this ongoing conversation about repairing the damage, is that certain things, the lack of reliable internet or electronic device for remote learning for a lot of our families. We had to do a lot of work to making sure that folks had laptops, to, to make sure that folks had internet. Um, and that speaks to the disparities that exist. There, it wasn't an easy transition from lockdown to our families, black families having what they needed. And it's not out of their strength to have it, it's the lack of access that exists and the denial of that equality and that equity that exists. Health, as we know, is, is a high piece, you know, because the most, the most impacted by COVID have been uh, black people, uh, black and brown people. Specifically in Boston, the hot spots, the red spots in the Massachusetts area are highly in the black communities. Um, and then Monday, the American uh, Medical Association came out with identifying racism as a public health issue. So the daily constant fighting uh, and pushing back on the attack on our bodies, our minds, our health, as black women, as black men, the policing of our bodies is constantly affecting us. Um, and that I have seen even greater during the pandemic uh, because many of us sort of moved through life and just trying to survive. And the pandemic slowed it down. And for many families, it highlighted how the lack of equity exists in our communities and in our spaces around the country and in the state. Criminal justice uh, system uh, speaks to the enslavement of African peoples necessi necessitated the development of a dual punishment system that continues to exist in the U.S. My immediate example of this is there still has not been justice for Breonna Taylor, George Floyd, Ahmaud Arbery, and the many who have been killed with the rising of the call Black Lives Matter. So the system does not see us in our human life. And most of these uh, people that we have raised their name now, Breonna Taylor, get re-victimized even after they've been brutally shot by police. Um, and I want to share a very personal story uh, around criminal punishment. My nephew was 11 years old when Trayvon Martin died. And the night of the result, my sister and I were crying on the phone. And he was in the background saying, I don't understand why you're crying. He's not even family. My nephew is now 19. So his entire story is that he has seen Trayvon Martin, Michael Brown, uh, Eric Gardner, Breonna Taylor, George Ford, Ahmaud Arbery, all killed by police and no justice has been served. So that is his own, his only narrative is that he does not know what justice looks like. 
because he has only seen injustice. Um, so that is a part of reparative justice. When are we going to have, you know, not have to go through two and three times or waiting to see if a police officer is going to be found guilty for killing, killing a black woman in her home, in her bed? Uh, the next piece is the wealth and poverty, and that has also been highlighted during this time. About two years ago, there was a report in Boston that by the time black families go home, there's only $8 left. Um, that continues to stand, and it continues to get worse now because we are the ones that were the frontline workers. We were the ones that were the essential workers. We are the ones that lost the jobs. We are the ones that are getting impacted. Boston had a moratorium, one of the best moratoriums in the in the country around uh, stopping evictions and foreclosure, it ended on October 17th. And although the numbers are going up in Massachusetts, we're going back to some quarantine lockdowns, we're on a curfew, people are losing their jobs again, unemployment is getting stopped soon, and we haven't extended a moratorium on housing and people are getting evicted during a pandemic where you're telling them don't move, be safe, but at the same time you have landlords evicting these same people. A report that was done by uh, one of my mentors, uh, James Jennings, um, uh, from the Tufts University um, uh, Policy Department, and he wrote this report with uh, Ajamu Brown around reparations. And one of the things that he says, just for me uh, to close out and, and give time for um, Q&A is that reparations can be an economic tool to both atone and mitigate the continuing impacts of historical injustices born of continual structural racial inequality. Um, given the uh, inevitable rapid restructuring of the global economy due to the pandemic, which has hit, hit many working class communities of color harder than most, and the continuing inequality that led to Black Lives Matter movement, the nation now has an opportunity to seriously implement a robust reparations plan for Black Americans to address its moral responsibility for the past wrong. So I'll leave it at that. Um, and uh, thank you so much again. Um, I'm really excited to be with you and excited to share this space with uh, Ray. Thank you both Ray and Yvette for joining us and Matthias for getting us started in today's conversation. We welcome our audience to post your questions and clarifications, request clarifications in the chat and we will draw on some of them. Um, and I will start perhaps with um, a question um, drawing on your last points, um, Yvette, and I'll, I'll open it up to both of you. You talk about atoning and mitigating, and I'm wondering how you think, um, you know, this should be structured because, uh, you know, in order to ensure that this doesn't happen again, that the inequities of the past are adequately addressed, and money will never sufficiently address everything, how do we also think about how institutions are reformed and restructured to ensure that there's both sort of atonement for the past, but also mitigation to ensure that the future is more equitable and, and just for future generations. So um, my, my, my first response is gonna be my radical response is that the whole thing needs to be shaken up and down as Frantz Fanon said. So, you know, you cannot continue 
to atone on a system that is broken. It is deeply broken. Um, you know, uh, uh, we spent the last couple of weeks waiting through the elections, and my sadness wasn't or concern wasn't about the result. My sadness was that it was we're even even having the conversation. Um, and and that speaks to the lack of acknowledgement of how deeply divided and broken this system is. Uh, so atonement means acknowledging that the system is broken. Atonement means even if you've studied us, you're not an expert on us. You don't live our lives. You don't have to walk out your door and worry about what's going to happen today because you're black. Um, so the fact that we haven't even acknowledged that, you know, we have jurors coming out and saying that the process for Breonna Taylor was not just, and we don't have anyone saying, you know what, that's true. Fix this. Solve this. Instead, we drag it and we re-victimize these victims for just being black, for just being black. When we get killed, it's very it's animalistic. I remember when Michael Brown was killed and I read the police report. I was sharing this with Ray earlier. It's like, it was, oh, he was this big animal. When George Zimmerman spoke about Trayvon Martin, it was this very, and he was a teenager. So atonement has to come with our everyday language. If your language still leans on whiteness, still leans on white supremacy, still allows someone to be standing on someone's neck to look above, then we are nowhere close to atoning because atonement means recognizing. Yeah, and I want to underscore everything that Yvette said. And See, I, I think in general, like, even the, the country lives on a series of myths about itself. And people classified white live on myths about what this country is all about. I mean, I personally have had death threats for talking about Sally Hemings, you know, who were the stepchildren, if you please, of Thomas Jefferson, that I'm sullying uh, his memory. I think this country lives on myths, and the myths are acted out in a variety of ways. We saw right before the election, for example, that, you know, oh, Biden's going to stop, you know, Trump because people know that he's a racist. People know that he incarcerates children on the southern border. Um, he's made all these sexist statements. But we have 70 million people who voted for him. And, and I don't want to sound cynical, but it makes me believe that this country isn't ready for the atonement that it needs desperately to continue to exist. So, um, I, I, you know, I, I, I also don't want to talk about uh, the recent past, but I will say that a few months ago there were these attacks on critical race theory. And one of the things I was fortunate enough to do this year was as a lifelong learner, I took um, summer school with Kim Crenshaw and um, Devin Carbado and others. It was like a UCLA Columbia Law School program. And it was really, you know, quite altering in many, many ways. And I'm just wondering in this current environment, um, 
you know, with attacks on critical race theory or even private institutions like Stanford saying that you cannot, you know, say that we are affected by systemic racism. Um, where, it, where are the entry points for uh, revisiting how uh, sectors and institutions approach um, sort of the legacy of uh, racial discrimination? Well, let me say, start this off. See, I think that this country already knows that it's racist. I really believe that. Um, for example, we saw, you know, after last summer, you know, they buried Aunt Jemima, they buried Uncle Ben. Now, you can't tell me that, you know, that they didn't know that Ben and Jemima were problematic 70, 80 years ago. You saw all of these corporations saying, you know, including the National Basketball Association, well, we're going to hang Black Lives Matter on the back of everybody's jersey. I think this country knows that it's racist. I think it knows that it's racist to its core. But if I were a white person, I would say this system has worked for me and my ancestors for the past 200 years. Why should I change it? We thought less white women were going to vote for Trump this time around. 53% did in 2016. Instead, we had more who voted for him this year, 55%. So, you know, I don't want to sound cynical again, but it's hard to be optimistic about a country that lives in the state of denial. My colleague, uh, Michael Eric Dyson, said we may well call the United States the United States of amnesia when it comes to enslavement, reparations, and its, you know, sordid past. And and then to add to that is the the those folks so most of the, the folks that lead sort of these organizations and these companies are white. Um and you cannot be able to really understand what this means if you're only coming through those white lens. So at what point do you restructure and bring more black leadership in? At what point do you, uh, you know, make sure that your your leadership has a mix, a diverse uh, group of folks? Like those are the things that need to be done. Just removing the box and some of that is not enough. It means how are you restructuring your power structure within those organizations? How are you having the conversation that doesn't threaten people and doesn't put black people to be always telling their story for you to feel better? It was like, no, you know, this is an everyday thing for us. Um, and, you know, it doesn't go away. You you see it in in very minuscule way with how people, you know, when you're in a store, my young people, you know, you have to talk about going in the store and being followed. You know, that all has to do with the psyche of what it means to be black in this country and what comes with it. Um, so the the conversation cannot be, you know, the NFL had an opportunity to lead. You know, I'm still with Cap, um, and he's not playing. Um, but everyone that's making the decisions in the NFL, although they have players and everything, those owners have the final say. And the last time I checked, there's not too many black owners. So in, in light of in light of these um, rather bleak aspects <laughs> that we have now encountered, I'm wondering a little bit um, 
So what's the way forward here? Uh, so my, my question in a minute for you is going to be, what, what, is it, what is it that you hope the Biden administration, the incoming Biden administration, this, this new period in American government can actually do about that, given how entrenched the situation this is? But before I actually get into that question, let me just add a, a couple of things just to also, in a way, adding to the to the, these kind of notes of pessimism that you just both articulated. Right? So a few weeks ago in this series, we had uh, Michael Dahl, Austin from the University of Chicago, who is a, you know, a researcher on, on black political thought and also especially on how blacks have been faring under neoliberalism. And he's also a public opinion researcher. And he has often done uh, polling on public opinion research on how people feel about reparations. And he persistently found that the average white person is very strongly against reparations. Mm-hmm. What they, what he does find, so it's, it's kind of interesting the the way the the the, the he varies the 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 way he's asking about that, right? So if he if he is, he's asking about reparations also for Japanese Americans from the internment experience in the Second World War, and people tend to be white people tend to be supportive of that of the fact that as you uh, Ray, you mentioned that that this was done and they are generally supportive of that. However, uh, one of the most striking things that he found is if he is asking about reparations for African Americans first, then then the mood turns so negative that when 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 the average white person comes to the question about the Japanese, they're no longer in favor of that either. That's that's just how they get primed. So that's that's how entrenched this is, right? And then at the same time, one thing one thing that that I think we have when we keep getting reports about this, and there was also. Uh, a major assessment of the state of democracy that the American Academy of Arts and Sciences just published under co-author, co-leadership of my colleague Daniel Allen here at the Sapra Center for Ethics. And they looked into how education, civic education unfolds in this country. And they find that, I mean, they, they find how differently American history is taught around the country. They, the standard story that I refer to in my introduction, that is simply how many people operate. And we increasingly also find teachers who who are so Ray, you mentioned you got you got threats, you got death threats for your for your positions. Increasingly, many more and more teachers around the country are reporting that as they as they teach history in any other way than the standard story, they are being threatened, and so they change careers, they move away, or they're simply not teaching it that way. Right. So so all of that is pretty bleak, and the bleakness just gets reinforced, and I think in the in the election result and. So what is what what's the hope here? Can you do you have hope? I mean, I, you know, proposals for the Biden administration, maybe. Well, you know. I'll let Ray go first. <laughs> you, but look, it's hard to have hope if you're African in America. I mean, let's be real. Uh, the the only people that can end racism, white supremacy in this country are people who are classified as white. Those are, black people cannot end that. Native Americans can, Japanese can, no one can do that. Um, I I think that there's a visceral uh, guilt that is felt by the average person answering those polls about reparations for African Americans. I've asked people who have asked me that, you know, white people who have said, I said, name, uh, they'll be all in favor of reparations for the Japanese. I said, well, name me 10 Japanese uh, millionaires, and they can't do it. But then if I said, name 10 uh, black millionaires, they'll immediately say, oh, are you going to give reparations to Oprah Winfrey and Jay-Z? Are they getting reparations? 
And it's like this cynical game that they're playing with me, but mostly to themselves about, uh, I don't really want to give you anything. Uh, when you when we give to black people, we take from white people. And, they'll, and I've had people actually say that. And so I think that it's hard not to be, I don't want to say cynical, but hopeful about, you know, that somehow this country is going to get itself together relative to racism and start doing the right thing. Um, if you had asked me, I went through the civil rights movement. If you had asked me in 1968 on the night that Dr. King got killed, uh, whether or not we would have a president of the United States uh, 60, nearly 60 years later, that was spouting racism, I would say that's impossible. We really thought that this dream that King had would be fulfilled by now. It isn't. So, you know, I don't want to sound cynical, but it, it's hard not to be cynical and feel a certain amount of hopelessness in this country's ability to deal with racism. And I think that's why books like, uh, what's the guy up your way uh, in Boston, Yvette, uh, that we were talking about earlier. Uh, yeah. Yeah, I think that his book is you know, it's more hopeful, and that's why it's reached number one, as opposed to Ta-Nehisi Coates' book, which is red, but Ta-Nehisi is more realistic about racism than I think Ibrahim is. And then I wanna I wanted to add because I Ray went from the outside and and my hope comes from the inside. My response to that is June Jordan's quote, We are the ones we've been waiting for. And I think that's how we are going to have to be we have to know and acknowledge what's happening on the outside of our community and what's around us. But what we also need to do is build within. How do we as Africans, African-Americans, Afro-Caribbeans, who all occupy this United States of America as people of African descent, how do we create our own agenda through our own lens, through our own reality, through our own experiences? Um, and that's where my hope is. My community organizing is not seeing us from a place of weakness, but from, from a place of strength. The fact that we still get up every day knowing everything that's coming at us speaks to those ancestors we stand, whose shoulders we stand on, who prepared us to, you know, fight till, <laughs> fight till we win. Um, and, and we may not win the outside fight, but I think the inside fight that we can see each other better, support each other better, love each other better is going to be my hopeful uh, piece um, as we move forward. Thank you. Um, I'm wondering if either of you could comment on um, the recent uh, signing of a bill by California Governor Newsom, which established a task force to study and make recommendations on reparations, as well as whether you see a path forward for HR 40, which has been kind of, you know, pending for so long. Um, so, uh, you know, where is there space for either the California legislation and models like that in other states? versus at the national level? Well, you know, I, I applaud Governor, Governor Newsom for, you know, assembling that panel and the commission to study reparations. And, and let's be clear, as we, I'm sure we are, 
that reparations are already taking places in places like uh, Evanston, Illinois, with uh, Councilwoman Robin Rue Simmons. I mean, she has been instrumental. Cam Newton, the uh, national co-chair of INCOBRA, has done a lot of work with her about reparations. Uh, Burlington, Vermont, just this week, appointed a commission as well. So I am hopeful. I think reparations are going to happen, I think, in this country. What I'm not hopeful for is that white attitudes are going to change, and there's a difference. I think reparations are inevitable in this country, but I don't think white attitudes towards And I'm not trying to say 100%, like uh, Marius said you know, a few minutes ago, I think that a larger portion of white people will support reparations as time goes by just like there's a larger portion now that supports it as opposed to 15 years ago. But whether or not that that core idea of being an American is being white, Protestant, and male, I'm not sure that's going to go away anytime soon. And H.R. 40 is being moved. You know, it was rewritten uh, last year, Um, you know, and people have criticism about it, but HR 40 is just a, an introduction to have a conversation. I mean, like, it's not giving anything majorly specific Although the ask. It's saying, acknowledge it, let's look at it, let's have a conversation about it, let's, you know, the 10-point program that you can find on the NARC website, let's, you know, look at it from these different points. And it's been blocked and, you know, side, you know, sideways and everything. So that within itself says if the government, you know, is not even leaning into it, then how do you then uh, bring that out into the community? So there's already hesitation. You know, I think it was last year when the conversation was really getting hot, uh, Mitch McConnell came out and said, I don't know why we're having this conversation because, you know, that was in the past. And, And then it made me go read more about his story and then realizing, Oh, by the way, you come from a family that has benefited off the backs of African Americans. So how dare you say that this is not a current conversation? So those are some of the things that we will have to to to, to see. But we're, I'm I'm not, and I know Ray's not. We're not going to wait for anybody to come and knock at the door and invite us to a table. We're going to keep creating new tables and keep knocking down doors. I'm also curious um, what your thoughts are about policy proposals.